0: We're going to take a look at Second Samuel chapter 23, and starting in verse 8, we'll go through the entire chapter. But don't worry, I'm not reading all of that. Uh, we're just going to highlight the first five characters, and then the last character, and then all those middle ones. Um, don't worry about that. But in this section of Second Samuel, we're, we're given this list recognizing those who have been loyally serving David and serving uh, his kingdom. And just reading through these names, it, it, it's going to be dry, right? You're just going to read this and be like, oh my gosh, it's just name after name after name. So again, we're going to dig a little bit deeper on the first five names and then the last name. Uh, but let's just read through verses 8 through 12 first. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Bath shebeth a he was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. That's my, one of my favorite names in the Bible. Son of Ahohai, a Hawaiian guy. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Aege the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, and the men fled from the Philistines. But he stood his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory." So these verses highlight these very th- elite warriors, these three elite warriors within David's army. Uh, Joshib, verse 8, was also known as Jeshobim in First Chronicles 11.11. 11. And he wields this spear against eight hundred, whom he kills in one battle. Eleazar, uh, while everyone withdrew from the battle, he stands his ground. He strikes down the Philistines until his hand is so weary, and he's and it's just stuck to his sword. Verses nine and ten. And then there's Shema. All the others flee the Philistines, but he takes a stand to defend uh, the farm. He defends all these farmers' land, and and that's in verses 11 and 12. So all three of these guys exhibiting uh, an incredible amount of bravery and an incredible amount of courage to stand alone and to fight when they are faced with these overwhelming odds. And not not only are they just fighting, they turn the tide by fighting with themselves. And you look at these guys and you're thinking, man, they're so incredible. These guys are so awesome. I can't believe what they can do. But I need to highlight verses 10 and 12 so that we take our eyes off of these guys and we put our focus on whom we really need to focus on. The Lord brought about a great victory. And then you go down to verse 12. The Lord worked a great victory. We often credit people when they do these incredible feats, when there's incredible bravery or incredible courage. But was it really the people? And it's not to take away anything from them because, of course, there was some courage within them. There was some bravery within them. But but to see beyond that and to see that there's God. And when we fail to recognize God's gift behind miracles... Then we start to idolize people, and we start to idolize things. Well, moving on to verses 13 through 17. And the three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave at Adullam, When a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim, David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines, was then at Bethlehem, and David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David, but he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. So this... Chronologically speaking, this is not um, chronolog- chronologically written. First, uh, 2 Samuel 23 is kind of reminiscing back to what happened before, and the author's trying to like conclude 2 Samuel. So he's kind of writing a summary of things that happened. So what this is referring back to is, 1st um, Samuel 22 or 2nd Samuel 5 when Adullam was written about so it's in one of those places David is overwhelmed with with these guys that are surrounding him and 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 it's the Philistines he's stuck in this cave and David is just thinking back to his hometown Bethlehem and and then these three guys risk their lives to kind of lift their their king's spirits and so it's it's kind of like when you're homesick and you're like, oh, man, I could really use that thing back, you know, at that, that boba bar or whatever that, or that uh, whatever food that you are, you're from, right? And you're like, I wish that I could have that. And, and then somebody that loves you so much says, like, I'm going to go get it for him. And takes a flight, jumps on Southwest and goes down to, like, Southern California and then comes back and then brings you this thing. And then you just dump it out. I mean, that, like, if I, I, I've done this for my kids before, where they're like, oh, I really want these chips. Like, um, before my kids went to camp, they wanted these Sichuan peppercorn chips. I was like, okay, I'm going to go find these chips. And I'm going to, like, K-Markets. I'm going to 99. I can't find these chips anywhere. And then, finally, I find these chips, and it took me, like, 30 miles to get these chips, bring them back, and they left them at home. Like, they didn't bring them with them. It's like, dude, I'm mad, right, like, How can you do that? Like I went through all that trouble. It's kind of like these guys, just like David, just and this is good water too. This is not like SoCal water. Any of you from SoCal? That water's trash. This is it's so bad. That water's disgusting. Or like in San Ramon, have you guys? Any of you guys from out in Tri Valley? That water's so horrible. I don't know how that's even how how people even drink that. The water here, we get Hetch Hetchy water. It's good. Like, just out of the tap, it's good. And, and you drink it, and it's, it's, like, nice water. And here David just, like, pours it out, and it doesn't even care. And these guys aren't even the types that are, like, we're going to sneak over there and try to get the water. They're, like, we don't do that. We fight through it. We're going to risk our lives. We're fighting through We're going to get the water, and we're coming back. And you know how far it was to Bethlehem and back? It's 25 miles So it's not like a few hundred yards, fight, and then come back. It's a marathon, a literal marathon there and back to bring back this water for your king who's getting, like you want to lift up his spirits, and he just dumps it. He poured it out to the Lord. Verse 16. So were these guys really angry? I I actually think they weren't angry. I actually think they saw that David was doing this as an act of worship because in verse 17 it reads far be it from me O lord that I should do this shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives see what these three did was very admirable it's even unbelievable that they would risk their lives to go all the way to Bethlehem to get some water and bring it back But that's what their devotion to David did. That's what their love for David did. And so the question gets turned on us. What about our love? What about our loyalty? What about our devotion to Christ, our King? What ends would we go to to show that we are loyal, that we love him, that we're devoted? And so not speaking of some exceptional or inspirational act like these guys did in risking their lives, but it's simple things like in our own routine lives, what do we do and how do we live our life? Are we cheating people, whether that's at work or at school, or or, or, are we kind of not being completely honest in our relationships? Are we living with integrity in the things that we do? Just in these simple routine things, how are we being loyal? How are we being loving To Jesus. And so we look at even Sunday worship, and here you are. A routine thing for many of you, and praise God. You're here to worship and to praise God, and it is a loving, it is a loyal, devoted thing to do for Christ. Verses 18 and 19. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was the chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. So here Abishai is the leader of the group, not as impressive of the, as the previously three mentioned, but he is their leader. Here it mentions Abishai killed three hundred men. It doesn't say how many battles it took, it was multiple, unlike uh, Josheb, who did it in one battle and 800 men, and so just kind of like a little tweak there, like, hey, 300 over, I don't know how long, but hey, the other guy, 800, one guy, and then moving on to Benaniah, verse 20, and Benaniah, the son of Jehoiah, was a valiant man of Kabzeel a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He went also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen, and he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaniah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaniah, the son of Jehoiada, and, and and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. And so here we have Benaniah, the, the fifth guy we're going to talk about. Also not as the same level as the first three, but very well respected, and the guy that just doesn't back down from anything he takes the fight to to the people he's like not waiting for a lion to attack him he goes down to the pit to destroy the, this lion he goes to the Egyptian with a spear and he just has a staff, no metal tip or anything and he defeats this Egyptian so he, a guy of action proactive, initiative and then we get to a list of no names in terms of no story and, and we won't go no, name by name, don't worry But these other names from verses 24 through 38, they don't have these stories as the previous five did. We're just given their name, we're given a lineage, we're given where they're from. And some of these aren't even living at the time uh, David is coming up with this list or, or the writer is putting this list. For example, verse 24 is Asahel. Asahel died in 2 Samuel chapter 2. here's a list of david's most loyal david's most esteemed soldiers and their names are on this list because they excelled in their calling they were loyal they loved david they loved the kingdom and you notice that not all of them have stories most of them it's just name most of them it's just the family name their homes and their names are on this list because of loyalty to the king and loyalty to the kingdom that they fought for their king and kingdom and they fought for well, And since David was God's covenant king, these soldiers were fighting for the kingdom of God in this world. And they were, they were kingdom servants who, who work, whose work was and will be remembered. They will not be forgotten. And these kingdom lists are not unusual in the Bible. The New Testament has them as well. That God does not forget those who are loyal to him. He is remembering of all these names who are loyal to him. And so some of these people in the New Testament have stories, and you know them Prissa and Aquila in Romans 16, Epaphras in Colossians, Epaphroditus in the Philippians 2, Onesiphorus, 2 Timothy 1. And they're given these details and stories like Abishai and Benaniah. But then there are these other times where it's just a list of names, and that's all it is it's a list of names. Like in Romans, it's, it just says, Greet Mary. And, and it talks about Rufus. I just bring up Rufus because our family just finished watching Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. So it's like Rufus came to mind. But thats it's just this list of names in Romans, right? And then there's a list of names at the end of Philemon. It's just a list of names and, and you're looking at it. There's no story. You don't know anything about it. And then you're thinking, so what? Well, I hope that this is encouraging to some of you because most of us don't have these incredible inspirational motivational stories like Abishai and Benaniah. we we have just our normal routine lives that we live we're not fighting through armies and killing 800 people like we're not we don't have these testimonies these incredible testimonies as the first three Abishai or Benaniah. but here's the thing the lord knows your name He remembers it. And if you have confessed Jesus Christ to be your Lord, you are written forever in the book of life. And God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly those of you who are loyal to him and love him and are devoted to him. So no matter how small you think your story is, you are his And you are on there, just like the rest of these guys who have these elaborate stories or incredible stories. But you have the same inheritance. Now, I want to point out one last person, and that's in verse 39. Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. If you know the story of Uriah and David, uh, can you raise your hand so then I don't have to go through all the detail? But if you don't, then I do. Okay, so I do. Uriah, he is mentioned back in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12, and the way that you will think about David is completely different if you know how ruthless and lustful and cruel and treacherous he was to Uriah, because Uriah was one of his key soldiers, but he sees Uriah's wife Bathsheba bathing, and so then he calls her over, he commits adultery. He gets her pregnant. So to cover up his mess, he calls Uriah back from the the lines, and he says, I'm going to let Uriah be with his wife, and then we'll just say that that child is his. Well, Uriah is a committed, loyal soldier to his own troops, and he's saying, I can't do that to my own troops. Like They're all risking their lives out there. I'm not going to go home and like enjoy being with my wife and like eating with her and hanging out with her. I'm just going to sleep on the floor. So he doesn't do it. David tries to get him drunk, and, tries get, and he doesn't do it. Even in his drunken stupor, he doesn't even do it. So David's like, what am I going to do with this guy? He's not falling in with my plan. So he, what, he, what he does is he writes a letter saying, send him to the front line, withdraw the troops, and have him killed. So essentially is murdering him so that he can get away with his adulterous affair and then look like a hero because he's saying, oh, yeah, you're right, got killed in battle. I'll I'll take his wife as my own, and I'm going to raise this kid as my own. And it is your kid, David. So this is what he's doing. And then it's not until the prophet Nathan tells him about this and exposes him for what he does. And so this is the backdrop of that. Now, the author, the writer of 2 Samuel 23 is purposely putting him last because in 1 Chronicles 11, he's just in the mix. He's just in the middle of all these soldiers. But here in 2 Samuel 23, Uriah is punctuated as the final on this list. And in order to get get the gravitas of this name, you have to know that story back in chapters 11 and 12. And it's not that the author wants the readers to relive this horror of of David's character and lack of integrity back in chapters 11 and 12. The author mentioned Uriah because he wants us readers to move beyond looking at Uriah and what happened between them like that. Because we will automatically associate not-so-good things when we think about David and Uriah. it's like, David, how can you even possibly say he's one of your mighty men? Because they're, all these guys that you've listed were loyal to you. But that guy, Uriah, you betrayed him. You are not loyal to him. And yet he's written there. And here's the point. Because the point of 2 Samuel 23 is not to make heroes out of David, out of the three, out of Abishai and Benaniah, or even out of Uriah. The point is to point people to God. To show that God is the hero because it is by God's grace that all of these people received help. And forgiveness because this is where David received forgiveness. That King David received it this is where chapters uh, verses 10 and 12 it reads the lord brought about a great victory the lord worked a great victory this is pointing people to god and so uriah the hittite is a name that is very loaded with negative thoughts and the remembrance of uriah is meant to lead us to the grace of god because uriah is a name that can haunt people it haunted david But it's not meant to anymore. What it's meant to do is to humble you. Because all of us have a chapter 11 or chapter 12 episode in our life. Something that haunts us, something that paralyzes us, something that doesn't allow us to move forward with God. And Paul, the apostle, had the same thing. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Starting in verse 9. Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Who is Paul? Paul. Paul, before he was saved, was this Pharisee of Pharisees who persecuted the church. Imagine this guy, how terrible he was. He would rip families apart, imprisoning a parent in in prison because of what they believed so that their children would be on their own. He gave the thumbs up to have Stephen killed. Stephen's just this innocent guy serving and doing nothing, and, and there Paul's like, kill him. Go for it. Get rid of guys like that. That's him. And so for Paul, his Uriah is possibly someone like Stephen. We're thinking like this young guy, and I, I sentenced him to death. Like I, 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 I was the religious leader in that situation, and I just said, go ahead. Kill that guy. And so you can imagine the haunting of Uriah's, of Stevens on a David, on, on, on a Paul. But it's in this humility that these terrible memories that can haunt people, that Paul allows it to humble him and to, to recognize that it is only by the grace of God that he is forgiven. And it helps him to see that he is the least of the apostles, even though most of the New Testament is written about him. All these missionary journeys, a lot of what is in, within Christianity is attributed to him. But then he says, I'm the least of the apostles. How can he possibly say that? Because he really experienced the grace of God. Because how can a murderer ever be redeemed to do the, one of the greatest works of God? Only by God. He also says he's unworthy to be called an apostle, but it's by the grace of God. And the same thing for King David. How can he ever be a worthy king when you're using your your most loyal subject, you kill him and then you take his wife? How is that even possible? Only by the grace of God. It's the same thing for you and me. Whatever appalling memories you have, if you are willing to humble yourself and immerse those things, your chapter 11 and 12s in the divine grace of God, you will still experience a broken heart. You will still experience sadness. You will still experience grief. The difference is that these memories and these hauntings become holy sadness, godly grief. Because God has forgiven you. And when you repent, he starts to mend. And he's able to use you for great good. You see what he's done with David. You see what he's done with Paul. That he can reshape all those bad things that you think are disqualifying you from any future use or service or whatever it is, and he can make you whole. He can set you free. And God does not forget the work of his servants, no matter how humble that work is, that you are remembered by him no matter how small it is. You know, this Uriah character, maybe you have that in your life. Maybe you have a person like a Uriah that you've wronged or that there's a situation there that you've done and, and you just don't think that you can be forgiven or that you don't think that it can be overcome, that it has tainted you, marked you for the rest of your life and you can't move forward. I need to point you to the wonderful grace of God, that there is a point forward, that you are not marked for life, that you're not stained for life that he can make you clean, that he can forgive you, that, th- that there is forgiveness, that there is, there is a righteousness given to you. And until you are forgiven, you will be stuck in your despair. And you're going to wallow in your suffering. You're going to wallow in your pain. You're going to wallow in your fear. You will be stuck there, and it will keep you down. But by the grace of God, if you are humble enough to ask him for forgiveness, he will. He will. He will love you. He will write your name in the book of life. You don't have to prove yourself. You don't have to do these big things. You can just be you and representing God in a godly way. If you sense anything holding you back, like a chapter 11 or 12 in your life, I'd welcome you to chat with me sometime after the service, or even during the service, like when I'm done here, if you want to chat, I'll just sit over there on the side. be more than honored to pray with you and to talk with you, but but there's nothing that the Lord cannot forgive you of and cannot help you overcome if you come in humility. Right? It's not to say like, oh, time heals all things, I'm just going to move on and It's not brushing it under the rug. It is God actually, in his divine power, forgiving you, releasing you, and sending you forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I I pray for all of those in here and those listening online that if there's anything holding them back from knowing who you are, that what you have for them is love, forgiveness, grace, mercy. I pray Lord that there would just be a moment of humility where they would cast those things away from them and to arrive at, at, at your feet asking you, Lord to be their king, to forgive them, to experience your grace and I ask God for your blessing upon this church who that is going through lots of things and has its own chapter 11 and 12 moments too, that as this church repents, as this church humbles itself, that it can move forward. You love it. It is written in the book of life. You are faithful to complete the work that you've started, and we believe that here in Jesus' name. Amen.